Baptist, we are obsessively focused on three things. Those three things are the lifeblood. We always say they're the lifeblood, they're our DNA of who we are as a church. At Calvary, we exist without apology to love God, to love others, and to spread the word. And so it is with special excitement that I am incredibly pleased uh, to welcome Dr. Danny Aiken to Calvary Baptist this morning. I've known him for years, and Dr. Aiken literally pours himself out daily, loving God, loving others, and spreading the word. Dr. Aiken has a really great family. He's a good family man, and he and his wife, Charlotte, have traveled to the Sudan, to Turkey, the Middle East, Kenya, Asia, Central Asia, all over the world, India, Paraguay, sharing the good news that Jesus Christ saves. He is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. <clears throat> I say this very seriously. I really believe it is the best seminary in the world. If you want to be trained for ministry, I don't say, Dr. Aiken, I tried to think through the names, and I think you're up there with any of them. Dr. Aiken, you're going to love him because he's a straight shooter, phenomenal preacher of God's word, and as a result, you are going to be blessed today. Have you ever wondered why some speakers, you can't take your eyes off of them, and other preachers, you struggle to keep your eyes open? with them. Well, today you are going to be eyes wide open as my good friend and a friend to our church, Dr. Danny Aiken, challenges and inspires you from God's Word. Would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Danny Aiken. Thank you, brother. Thank you. To mention to you, these are yours when you go. We, we got you a a shirt of your favorite team, George Bulldogs fan. Any Bulldog fans out there? Put that down here and let you get it. Some keep you a drink coat on the way home to a Georgia Bulldogs service tumbler, all right? <laughs> Those are yours. Don't, don't forget them. We love you, brother. Well, I didn't hear too much enthusiasm about Georgia fans, but um, uh, at least they... Uh, put it on South Carolina yesterday otherwise I'd be up here in mourning and grief and all sorts of things like that yeah Alabama's the evil empire brother I uh uh that 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 whole state needs that whole state needs to get saved and so um especially after what they did to Georgia in the national championship last year so anyway but you know when you win you can crow and uh so we just have to put up with it hopefully not too much uh, longer. Let me say, first of all, what an honor it is to be here and also to serve you at Southeastern Seminary uh, over in the what used to be the small town of Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, it's not small anymore because Raleigh has just exploded and is growing past where we are. I think you'd be encouraged to know that, that we are in wonderful days. Southeastern now has more than 4,000 students, making us the third largest seminary uh, in America, really the third largest seminary in the world. Uh, we have more than 800 students in a college uh, that is the only four-year confessional Baptist school in the state. You say, what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean by that we are proud of what we believe, and we're delighted for everyone to know what we believe. Uh, we stand on an infallible and an errant Bible, we believe there's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. We believe the gospel needs to go to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And amazingly and tragically, what used to be faithful Baptist colleges in our state, none of them are faithful anymore. Not a one of them has a confessional statement. Uh, not one of them will stand up and proudly articulate and confess those basic biblical truths that the church has believed uh, for 2,000 years. And so if you're looking for a school for your children or grandchildren that is very affordable, uh, but also very clear on where it stands and what it believes, then the College at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, certainly ought to be a school that you would consider uh, and that you would look at possibly sending uh, your kids. 
I love your pastor. He was a trustee on my board for 10 years, sent his son to Southeastern to do two degrees, and so I have great love and affection for him. He's been bragging on you all uh, since he came back here to be your pastor, and I will say already this morning, uh, I have been encouraged. Your music has been wonderful. Uh, it makes it easy uh, to preach God's Word after singing and praising the Lord like we have this morning. So I want to invite you to take your Bible, and I want you to turn to the shortest book in the Bible. So all of you are immediately turning to what book? Third John, not Philemon. Now, your pastor needs to go back to seminary. Um, <laughs> there actually are five one-chapter books in the Bible. Philemon is one of them, but it is 25 verses. Uh, Jude's another one. It's 25 verses. Then there is 2 John and 3 John. 3 John, just a little bit shorter than 2 John. But now, Bible trivia. What is the one one-chapter book in the Old Testament? Obadiah. Obadiah. So there are five one-chapter books in the Bible. The shortest of all is 3 John, and even though it is tragically ignored and seldom preached, I think it is one of the most important missions books in all of the Bible because of what it says in particular about a wonderful man by the name of Gaius. So this morning I want to speak to you on the subject, Are You on Mission with God?, and let me read for you verse 1 through verse 15 from the little letter of 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And by the way, when I teach Bible interpretation at the seminary or the college, one of the things we point out is that you look for repetition of words in a particular paragraph, or in this case, a particular book, because if an author uses a word again and again and again, obviously it is a major idea that he wants us to grasp and wants to be buried deeply into our heart. Well, some form of the word love occurs six times in these 15 verses. Some form of the word truth occurs five times in these 15 verses. And some form of the word testify or testimony also occurs five times in these verses. So he's very interested in love. He's very interested in truth. He's also very interested in our witness, our testimony. And he's interested in how we live or how we walk because he says there twice in verse 3 and 4, you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. They testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey. It could be translated to send them on their mission in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out. They've gone on missionary assignment uh, for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And I'll have quite a bit to say about that verse in just a moment. Now, it would be so wonderful if the book ended at verse 8, but it doesn't. Verse 9. I have written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He doesn't welcome the missionaries into his home. He doesn't welcome them into the church. In fact, he stops those who wants to. He even puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Why? A very basic spiritual principle. 
Whoever has a life that is characterized by good is from God. But whoever has a life characterized by evil has not even seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. And then John concludes, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. Today we might say, I didn't want to send you an email. I didn't want to send you a direct message. I didn't even want to send you something by means of Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat. No, that just would not work. I hope to see you soon. And we will talk, and literally in the Greek text, it is, we will talk stomata ton stomata, which is mouth to mouth. Now, we don't talk like that, and so I agree that the translators uh, did right in saying we will meet and talk face to face, but your face doesn't talk. It's your mouth that talks. So actually, they were probably a little bit more accurate than are we today. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk mouth to mouth, face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Every one of you this morning walked into this uh, auditorium with a very valuable possession. Now, this valuable possession is a very interesting thing because it came with you. But guess what? It also goes where you don't go. Furthermore, what you think of this valuable possession may not at all be what other people think about it. You say, Danny, what are you talking about? I'm talking about your reputation. You see, we all have a reputation. Uh, people look at us, and people watch us, and they make a judgment about our character. They make a judgment about the kind of person we are. They, they conclude whether or not they would like it or not if you were their next-door neighbor. And the fact of the matter is, you cannot escape your reputation. It goes where you go. It goes where you don't go. It precedes you. It follows you all of your life and beyond Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in London, understood how very important our reputation is to the integrity and reputation of the gospel. Listen to what Spurgeon said, and I quote, The eagle-eyed world acts as a policeman for the church. It becomes a watchdog over the sheep, barking very furiously as soon as one goes astray. Be careful. Be careful of your private lives, and I believe your public lives will be sure to be right. But remember, it is upon your public life that the verdict of the world will very much depend. So this morning, as we prepare to walk through these verses, look at the lives of a man by the name of Gaius, Diotrephes and Demetrius. Let me put three questions on the table for you to consider as we make our journey through these verses. Number one, what do you think of yourself? In those moments when you can be honest with you, and that's not an easy thing to do, by the way, what do you think about yourself? Second question, what do you think others think about you? If I were to have the opportunity this morning to talk to your spouse, your children, your parents, your close friends, people you work with, and I were to ask them, look, be brutally, brutally honest. Tell me what you think about him. Tell me what you think about her. What do you think they would say? But then thirdly and most importantly, what do you think God thinks about you? You see, God sees everything you do. Oh, it's worse than that. God knows every thought, every emotion. He knows everything about you, and he sees all. So what does the Heavenly Father think about you? Does he look at you and say, like, Gaius, I am very pleased with your life. You just keep on doing what you do, or you're doing. Or would he look at you and say, like, Dr. Fees, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Oh, you act like one thing at one moment, but you're actually altogether different at another. You act like you care about the church, but really all you care about is yourself. 
You are full of you. You think of you. You love you. You admire you. You're proud of you. You, me, and I is your agenda. Is that really what the Lord would say? And so what I want us to do is allow these three men, if I could say it this way, to act like mirrors. Let them reflect back toward us who they were, what they were like, and see what you and I can learn about ourselves from these three men. Now, let me tell you the outline that we're going to quickly follow through these verses. First of all, Gaius, I'm going to characterize him as a man with the right passions. Gaius is a man with the right passions. That's verses 1 through 8. Secondly, we'll look at a man by the name of Diotrephes, and I characterize him as a man with a harmful agenda. So Gaius has the right passions, but Diotrephes has a harmful agenda. And then finally, Demetrius, he is very clearly characterized as a man with a good testimony. So you have a man that has the right passions, you have a man that has a harmful agenda, and you have a man who has a good testimony. Now, Gaius is a man with the right passions. Why would we say he is a man with the right passions? Well, there are four things I want to show you very quickly that I would pray would be true in my life, but also true in your life that we see very clearly in this man by the name of Gaius. Number one, he lives spiritually. He was a man who lived spiritually. Look at verse 1. The elder, uh, the word means the uh, aged one. Here it's not probably used in a technical way, but simply noting that John, the author of this letter, is an older man at this particular moment in time in his life. And so the elder, the, the grandfather, writes to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The idea is you're special to me. Uh, I have a tender place in my heart for you. I truly love you. And then he says in verse 2, in a very simple prayer, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as, look at this, it goes well with your soul. Most Bible commentators say, and I agree, that uh, this verse probably indicates that there was something physically troubling to Gaius at this particular moment in time. We don't know what it was, but evidently the traveling missionaries had come back. They had informed John that they had met this wonderful brother by the name of Gaius, but that he was struggling physically, that he was having some physical problems in his life. And so John prays, not a very long prayer, John prays a very simple prayer. In our English text, it's just one verse. And let me just remind you, sometimes the short prayers are the most authentic prayers. Sometimes we think, oh, God will hear me if I'm like the Pharisees who are known for their long, extended prayers. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for a long time if it comes from a sincere heart, but sometimes, you know, the best, best prayers are short prayers. And so he simply prays a very simple prayer that I can summarize this way. Gaius, I'm praying for you, and I'm asking the Lord to do this. Lord, bless Gaius physically to the same degree that he is healthy spiritually. Bless him physically to exactly the same degree that he is healthy spiritually. Now, let me ask you a question. What if I prayed that prayer for you and God answered my prayer? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Now, he's your pastor, so I'm going to pick on him. Lord, bless Brother Jack physically to exactly the same degree that he is healthy spiritually. Would he be in bed? Would he nearly be dead? I mean, would he suddenly fall out in the floor? We'd have to call EMS and get them over here very quickly to try to save his life. Now, again, you say, well, he looks pretty good on the outside. God doesn't care what you look like on the outside. God cares what you look like on the inside. You can lie to others, but you can't lie to God. And yet, evidently, John was comfortable. No, no, no. He was confident that he could pray a prayer like that for Gaius and that it would be a good thing. In other words, he was convinced, Lord, if you will bless him physically to the same degree that he is healthy spiritually, everything will be just fine with him because this is a man who is walking spiritually. Now, how do we know that he is walking spiritually? Well, it unfolds for it because, secondly, he was walking truthfully. 
living spiritually, verse 1 and 2, but walking truthfully, verse 3 and 4, John writes, I rejoice greatly, not just a little, I rejoice greatly when the brothers, we'll see in a moment that these brothers were missionaries, when the brothers came and they testified, they gave a witness to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. And to reinforce that, John repeats the thought in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, a couple of things. First of all, that John calls him my children most likely indicates that John had led Gaius to faith in Christ. Uh, John was Gaius' spiritual father. There had been a time in Gaius' life, like all of us in this room, uh, who are, are saved today, we weren't always saved. There was a time when we were lost. There was a time when we were dead in our sins. There was a time when we were rightly headed to a place called hell. And God in His goodness and grace brought somebody into your life. In, in my life, it was my mother and my grandfather in particular who shared the gospel with me. And one night on a Sunday night coming home from church, I, I was standing in the, in the hallway. And I want to tell you, I felt like I had a weight inside of me that I'd never felt before. I felt like I was just going to collapse right there in the hallway. And my mother, being the sensitive, godly lady that she was, said, Sweetheart, what's wrong with you? And I said, Mama... I know I'm a sinner, and I know Jesus loves me, and that Jesus died for my sins, and that he rose from the dead, and I want him into my life. And as a 10-year-old boy, I repented of my sin, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I can say to you all this afternoon in just a moment that I came to faith in Christ, not only from my physical mother, but from my spiritual mother. And so Gaius had been led to faith in Christ by John, and so John had a very special interest in him. And so John hears that he's sick, so he prays for his physical health. But then John says, the brothers came back, these missionaries came back, and they said that your life is characterized by walking in the truth. Now, I've always been taught most of my life that truth is something you believe. John says it's that and more. Truth is not only something you believe. Truth is something you live. There's some of you here uh, in this uh, auditorium this morning that would know the name Vance Havner. Vance Havner was a North Carolina evangelist, one of the most witty, brilliant men that's ever walked the planet. And Dr. Havner was just very adept at kind of, you know, putting a phrase together and putting wisdom together. And Dr. Havner used to say this, what we live is what we really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. What we live is what we really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. Gaius did not live a life that was characterized by religious talk. He lived what he believed. And so he was a man that was living spiritually and walking truthfully. But thirdly, he was a man that was serving faithfully. Look at what it says in verse 5 and verse 6. Beloved, it is a faithful thing. The idea is it's a good thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, these traveling missionaries, strangers as they are. I know you didn't know them, but that did not matter because in Christ we're family. We're brothers and sisters regardless of race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status. We're family. And so they came to you and they came back to us and they gave a testimony. They, they witnessed to you. They testified to the love that you had for them before the church. And so verse 6, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner that is worthy of God. Now, here's, let me just summarize what's going on here. John, being the apostle, has sent out missionaries. And these missionaries have gone out across the Greco-Roman world to share the gospel, uh, to see people saved, to plant churches. Well, in the ancient world, uh, there were not many hotels or motels, and even when there were, they did not tend to be the places that you would want to stay. And so if you were traveling, you had one of two options. Uh, number one, 
Find some friends or family members that you could stay with them in their home. Or number two, sleep outside uh, under the beautiful blue sky and the stars and the moon and just basically live out of doors. And that's what they did. It was, it was just the, the way the world was back then. So these uh, traveling missionaries had come to a town. We don't know where the town was. And uh, they met a man named Gaius. They told Gaius who they were. They told Gaius where they were from. And Gaius said, my home is your home. My home is your home. And he took them in. And what did he do? I have no doubt that he gave them something to eat. He gave them a place to sleep. He gave them a place to rest. And I'm quite certain, based on what we were about to read in verse 7 and verse 8, financially, he assisted them as they went on their way. So they came back to the mothership, came back to the Apostle John and said, God has blessed our missionary endeavors over the last several months. But in particular, we think you'd be interested to know about a man named Gaius. Oh, what a godly, wonderful brother. He's having some physical issues, so we should pray for him. But let me just tell you, when we got to that town, he welcomed us with open arms. My house is your house. My food is your food. My home is your home. My money is your money. And so John can say to him, listen, brother, you just keep on doing what you're doing. I wouldn't change one thing. Now, think about that. I wouldn't change one thing about your life. The way you love Jesus, the way you care for other people, you just keep on doing what you're doing. And he was serving faithfully. But then the fourth thing about Gaius that we see is that he was a man who was giving generously. Verse 7, they have gone out, these traveling missionaries, they've gone out for the sake of the name. Now, this is the only reference in 3 John to the Lord Jesus. But here's what's amazing. This letter is probably written in the 90s of the first century, so we're toward the end of the first century. Already by now, if you were uh, living and, and you were, were, were following Christ, you could simply say to someone, well, I'm a follower of the name. I'm a follower of the name. After all, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And so you could just simply say, I'm a follower of the name. And they knew immediately that means you are a follower of King Jesus. So they went out for the sake of the name. Now, don't miss this. They did not accept a penny from the Gentiles. Now, in this context, stay with me, Gentiles here probably means Lost people. Lost people. In other words, they did not accept anything from pagans. Let me say it another way. God's work was not financed by the monies of lost people. God's work was not financed by the monies of lost people. So let me just be real clear for a moment. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, for whatever reason, you've never repented of your sins, You've never put your faith and trust in Christ. Let me say a couple of things. Number one, we are so glad you're here. You have blessed us and honored us by your presence. We are so glad you're here. Secondly, our prayer for you is that in this service this morning, you will make the most important decision a person will ever make in their entire life. And that is that you will repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone because the Bible says whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, which means he will forgive all of your sins, he will make you brand new, and he will take you to heaven when you die, and he'll do a whole lot more than just that. Oh, that's plenty, I would say. Amen? Amen. But here's one thing I want you to know. And I did not clear this with your pastor, but I don't think I had to. We do not want your money. We do not work. We say, well, no, 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 no. I'd like to give some money. Well, if you want to, you can, but we're not asking you for it. We don't want it. We don't need it. You say, well, we do need it. No, we don't. No, we don't. God's people take care of God's work. We do not prostitute the gospel by giving people a false understanding that by giving their money, somehow they can earn a right and acceptable standing before God. You can give away everything you've got and still die and go to hell. Nobody buys their way into heaven. Nobody. So we don't want your money. We don't need your money. 
But I'll tell you this, God's people, in light of what he has done for them in Jesus, are glad to give their money. And so the Bible says there in verse 8, we ought to support people like these. Why? That we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, I don't know a more important missionary verse in all the Bible than verse 8. You say, why do you say that, Danny? Well, let's just think about this for just a moment. When it comes to getting the gospel to the ends of the earth, uh, getting the gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, to quote Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, uh, to get the gospel to all of the unreached peoples that are right here now in North Carolina and in the Charlotte area, okay? For that to happen, what has to happen? Well, at least three things. We have to pray, we have to give, and people have to go. And it's really that simple. We pray, we give, and we go. We pray, we give, and we go. We pray, we give, and we go. All right? Let's work backwards. God calls all of us to go on some level. I don't care who you are. So, no, no, I'm, I'm too old. No, you're not. Uh, I'm too dumb. No, you're not. Uh, I'm not interested. Well, that's sin. So get your life right with God. That's sin. God doesn't call everyone to go to Afghanistan to Thailand, to India, to China, to the Ukraine, to the Sudan, to Kenya, uh, to Liberia, to Brazil, to Mexico. And I keep going a long, long time. He doesn't call everybody to go, but he calls some people to go. And guess what? They can't go unless we do two things. Number one, we have to pray. And number two, we have to do what? We have to give. We have to give. Now, a few years ago, and I'm going to get very personal in your business, and I don't have to come back, so I can do what I want to. <laughs> but I'm going to just share what happened to me in, in terms of, of conviction and a change in my way of thinking, and I pray that God might, might do the same thing for you. I was at a conference, and there was a man up preaching about missions, and he talked about going and, and, and praying, and then he talked about giving. And he said, let me ask you all a question. I'm going to ask you this question. How many of you have the work of the Lord in your will? Now, I'm not asking for everybody to raise their hand because I'm pretty afraid of what I might not see. But how many of you have the work of the Lord in your will? And I was sitting there with my wife, and I said, you know, we don't. I mean, if we die... Today, our four sons and their wives and our grandkids will get everything we've got, whether it's $5, $500, $500,000, or $5 million. Whatever we have, they're going to get. Well, why would we leave everything to them? I mean, they're just going to waste it like our kids waste all our money. So, I mean, why, why, <laughs> why, why, why would I give everything to them? I mean, I, I want to leave them something. But why don't I leave something to Jesus? So the next day, we called a lawyer, and we changed our will. And by the way, just so that you know, I shared with all four of my sons what we were going to do, and all four of them said, Daddy, that's fine with us. In fact, if you want to give more to Jesus, that's fine. So here's the deal, and I don't say this to brag. I'm just saying it as a testimony. When, when I die, the day that I die, Things will be set into action where I will make overwhelmingly the single largest gift to the work of the Lord that I will ever make in my entire life. And because God's been good to us right now, it's a six-figure number that will go to the work of the Lord. So that when I'm dead and gone, I'll still be working for Jesus through my gifts to a particular Entity, which in our case happens to be Southeastern Seminary. Now, I'm just again going to ask you the question, why wouldn't you have the work of the Lord in your will? Why wouldn't you? I mean, you're not taking it with you. It's, it's all staying here. I'm not opposed to blessing our children. We'll be blessing our children. But why not bless the Lord? Why not continue in his work? After you're dead and gone, why not, as the Bible says, why not be a fellow worker for the truth by what you give? Would to God that 
every church, including this one, was filled with Gaiuses, men who lived spiritually and walked truthfully, men who served faithfully, and men and women who give generously. Well, as I said a moment ago, I wish the book ended at verse 8, but it doesn't. So very quickly, look at verse 9 and verse 10, and you'll see the great, one of the great scallywags of the Bible, a man by the name of Diotrephes. And to honor time, let me just tell you the four things that were true about Gaius, and I'll make a quick comment. I mean, Diotrephes, and I'll, 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 I'll then make a quick comment. Number one, he was prideful. Number two, he didn't listen to anybody. Number three, he was a liar. And number four, he was a bully. Okay? He was prideful. He didn't listen to anybody. He was a liar. And he was a bully. And let me just tell you, anybody like that will suck the life out of a church and kill its missionary passion. I don't care how much you say you love Jesus and love the nations, you allow a man like Diotrephes to worm his way into position of influence and you will kill the missionary passion of your church. Look at what the Bible says about him, verse 9. John says, I've written something to the church, a letter that we did not have preserved. We don't know what that letter was. Evidently, I think it was a letter of commendation for the missionaries. That's my own uh, supposition. So I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. He was a man driven by pride. He loved himself and not others. He was the kind of guy that said, my way or the highway. Uh, he's a guy who had a me, myself, and I agenda. He was a church member, a church leader that was territorial, uh, myopic. Uh, defensive as far as reaching the nations he would say things like this well we need to take care of ourselves first we need to focus on ourselves first now, I don't disagree that we should focus on ourselves but not to the exclusion of others God never blesses a selfish church ever he's just not going to do it because God hates pride and at the very core of pride is selfishness. We just need to take care of us. We just need to watch out for us. Y'all have a graveyard around here? Praise God. Praise Jesus. Don't you ever get one. I, I, I've, I, I've been to churches and seen budgets where they give more money to their graveyard out by the side than they do to missions or evangelism. Let's, let's give more money to the dead than the living. What, what stupidity is that? But you know what, if you're not careful, you take the... And by the way, I'm not against graveyards. I'm going to be in one one of these days. Unless Jesus comes back first. I, I'd really like that. That's my preference. But if he delays his coming, I'm going to be in a graveyard. So I'm not opposed to graveyards. But I'm certainly not going to turn one into an idol. I'm certainly not going to spend more. You say, well, don't you want people to keep the, 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 the weeds away from your grave? Well, I won't care. I'll be dead. I'll be up in heaven walking streets of gold. You think a few weeds down here on earth are going to bother me? They ain't going to bother me. I mean, good night. What's wrong with you? So it's amazing. It's just amazing. And so here's Diotrephes that is driven by pride. But then this is one real danger, brothers and sisters, for all of us that we need to guard against. He wouldn't listen to anybody. He wouldn't listen to anybody. The text says he likes to put himself first. Furthermore, he does not acknowledge our authority. And whose authority are we talking about here? The Apostle John. He's basically saying, I don't need to listen to John. John's got nothing for me. John's a has-been. He's an old man. Isn't he in a nursing home by now? And so he didn't listen to John because he was a man that was driven by his pride. But he got, it gets worse than that. He was willing to lie and malign others to further his agenda. John says, verse 10, if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing. What's he doing, John? He's talking wicked nonsense against us. One translation says he is gossiping and lying maliciously. In other words, if I need to lie to get my way, no problem. If I need to misrepresent you to get my agenda accomplished, no problem. And so he would lie about other people, but the worst of all was he was just a bully. I, I don't know about you, but I hate bullies. Come on, all sorts of shapes and sizes, but I just, I just can't stand being around them. They have a little authority, 
maybe a lot of authority. They get a position for a time, and so they just push people around. And they speak ill of people, and they misrepresent people, and they lie to get their way. And so what does the text say at the end of verse 10? He's not content with talking wicked nonsense. He refuses to welcome the missionary brothers. In fact, it's worse than that. He stops those who wants to and even puts them out of the church. Now, it's very interesting. We do not know. We do not know who Diotrephes was. The text doesn't tell us. Was he the pastor? Maybe. Was he the leader of the music team? Maybe. Was he a deacon? Maybe. Was he the leader or the head of a powerful, influential family in the church? Maybe. What we do know is he had influence because he had the ability to excommunicate people that wanted to care for traveling missionaries. This is an interesting story. A.T. Robertson was the greatest Greek scholar America ever produced. He actually taught at Southern Seminary for decades and you know what he's a graduate of wake forest college when it was over where my school is my my school southeastern seminary bought uh people still come to see wake forest university at in in, in my town i have to say guys wake forest university is not in wake forest north carolina it's like 120 miles up the road in winston-salem and they're like well why is wake forest university in winston-salem why isn't wake forest university in wake forest north carolina well because the reynolds family gave them like millions and millions of dollars to relocate up there and by this is for free i don't even know why i bring this up they were going to change the name of the, the deal was they were supposed to change the name of the school from wake forest college to reynolds college and then reynolds university but they get they got the money took the land and then said but you traffic in tobacco so we can't change the name uh, for a Baptist school, and so they never changed the name. And the Reynolds family let them get away with it. I mean, they wanted, a, they wanted a school named after them, just like the Duke family, who also trafficked in tobacco, made all their money in tobacco, wanted a school named after them, okay? So Wake Forest University, Winston-Salem, Wake Forest, North Carolina, right there outside of, of Raleigh-Durham. That is where we are located. Well, A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, actually went to college right there. And when he was teaching at Southern Seminary, their state paper, their Baptist state paper, asked him to write a little devotional article on 3 John. And so he did. And he wrote his devotional article on diatrophies. One month later, he gets a letter from the editor of the state paper saying, well, A.T., I think you'd be interested to know that 25 deacons across the state of Kentucky have canceled their subscription to our state paper because in your article, you personally criticize them. <laughs> you, you mean Danny, he called them by name? He didn't mention no names. He just said there are people in the church that are prideful, they don't listen to anybody, they lie, and they're bullies. And 25 deacons said, you picking on me. <laughs> well, I think it's probably true in North Carolina like it is in Georgia where I'm from. There's a saying, throw a rock and a pack of dogs, and the one that yelps is the one that got hit. So if you're sitting here right now and you're saying, well, I don't really like what you're saying about Dr. Fees. Maybe I just whacked you with a rock. <laughs> and if I did, I can be very clear, you need to repent of your sin and get your heart right with God because the Bible says God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in fact, it says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. You want to go up? You got to go down. And Diotrephes was a man with a harmful agenda. Well, very quickly, because I want to honor our time, Demetrius, a man with a good testimony. Look at verse 11 and verse 12, and I'm finished. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. That word imitate means to mimic. Do not mimic evil, but mimic good. Why would he say that? Because John knew that we all have people that we admire and look up to. We all have heroes. We do. And what's amazing is, even though he was a scumbag, Diotrephes evidently was a pretty impressive personality. He was the kind of guy that uh, carried himself well, was very articulate in the way that he spoke. 
was probably successful in the community, and it was very easy for people to be seduced and look up to this scallywag that was doing so much harm to the church. And so John says, be careful who your heroes are. Be careful who you imitate, who you mimic. After all, here's a very basic theological truth. Whoever does good, that is, whoever's life is characterized by the goodness that flows out of the gospel, they're from God. But whoever does evil, their life is characterized by lying and pride and bullying. They've not even seen God. People sometimes ask me, do you think Dr. Fees was a Christian? I don't know. I think John doubted it. John doesn't say he's not a Christian. John just says, I know this. If your life is characterized by the goodness of the gospel, you probably know God. If your life is characterized by the evil of the evil one, the odds are you don't know God. So let me close by telling you of a guy that did know God. There was a man by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius has received a good testimony from a threefold source. Number one, he has a good testimony from everyone. Wow, what a statement. Number two, he has a good testimony from the truth itself. And number three, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, the phrase that I want to leave with you is that first phrase, he has a good testimony from everyone. Imagine that, a good testimony from everyone. Did everyone love Jesus like Demetrius loved Jesus? No. Did everyone believe like Demetrius believed? No. But Demetrius was the kind of guy that, again, as I said earlier, if he was your next-door neighbor, you'd be just fine with that. Demetrius was the kind of guy that if you called him at 3 o'clock in the morning because you needed his help, he'd be there just like that. You see, Demetrius was a whole lot, maybe I should say it this way, I know a man that was a whole lot like Demetrius. You see, that man was my granddaddy. My granddaddy was a very simple farmer in Douglasville, Georgia. He had a fifth-grade education. Not only was he a very poor dirt farmer, for a time he was also the janitor of our church. My granddaddy was responsible for me to coming to faith in Christ. And my granddaddy loved Jesus with all of his heart. When I was 14 years old, my granddaddy suddenly died of a heart attack and he was gone. But about 10 years later, God had called me into the ministry at the age of 20 on a mission trip on an Indian reservation in Sells, Arizona. I was invited to come and preach at the Victory Baptist Church, which, by the way, their auditorium looks a whole lot like this one. And up on that hill today is buried my granddaddy, my grandmother, my daddy, and my mama. So I come back and preach a decade after my granddaddy had died. And that morning when the pastor, just like Brother Jack did, introduced me, he didn't do it like you did. He said, we're very honored this morning to have as our preacher, Mr. Galloway's grandson. Oh, his name is Danny Aiken. And then he said, how many of you in this congregation remember Mr. Galloway? It wasn't a large church, probably 75 to 100 but almost every hand went up. And then he began to talk about what a godly, kind, gracious, loving, Christ-like man my granddaddy was. And I'm thinking, he's been dead for a decade, and people still remember him. Let me ask you a question as I close. When you've been dead for a decade, will people even remember you? And if they do... What will they say? Will they say he loved Jesus and he was a man like Gaius or Demetrius? Or will they say, you know, it was a good day when he died because he was an absolute jerk. Just like that guy over there named Diotrephes. He, he, he was prideful. He wouldn't listen to anybody. He was a liar. And he was a bully. May God, by his grace, get rid of all of the diatrophies. And may God, by his grace, raise up a generation of men and women that are like 
Demetrius, and they're like Gaius. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a book that helps us understand what is necessary in a church to be on mission for King Jesus. We need men like Demetrius with a good testimony and men like Gaius who served sacrificially and gave sacrificially so that others could go. Lord, most of the people in this church will not be called to be missionaries in the Sudan or in China or in the Ukraine or anywhere else across the ocean. But Lord, you have called them to be on mission with you and that means they pray and that means they give. Lord, it also means where you place them, they go. But Lord, we will only pray fervently and give generously and go faithfully if we know you. And so, Lord, it is my prayer that not a man or a woman, not a boy or a girl will leave this place today without having done business with you and having, Lord, come to a realization that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are saved, that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt they belong to Jesus, that they know I have repented of my sin, I have put my faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And when I stand before the Father and he says, why shall I let you into my heaven? They will say, Lord, Lord, you shouldn't let me into your heaven. But, Lord, there was a time in my life when I came to realize I could not save myself, but Jesus could. And I fled to him, and he kept his word that whosoever called upon his name would be saved. And so, Lord, I'm here not because of who I am or what I've done, but I'm here because of what Jesus did for me. Lord, as we begin to extend now a time of invitation And we sing a a hymn with joy and thanksgiving and gratitude for all that we have in you. Lord, if there is even one person here today who needs to be saved, may they this day make that greatest and most important of all decisions by stepping out from where they'll be standing. Come forward and take their pastor by the hand and just simply say, I am coming today to follow Jesus. I'm coming today because I want to be a man like Gaius, a man like Demetrius. I want to be a man that loves God and serves God and whose life is indeed characterized by the truth of the gospel as I walk and live daily in the truth. So, Lord, as we sing now, may your will be done perfectly in each of our lives. And, Lord, we will thank you in advance for all that you'll do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Let's stand to our feet. We sing. Brother Jack is here at the front to receive you. And if you need to make a public decision this morning, this time is for you right now. I invite you to step out, and I invite you to come and come now.